spend some time really thinking about the kind of practice that you want to create when you're finished your training. And the earlier you start doing that, the better off you're going to be because, again, you want the kind of thing that you are, you're creating the vision for yourself. Hey everybody and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Today we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Gregory Corradino. Dr. Corradino is a neurosurgeon by trade, a business owner, and most recently an author of the book Beyond Medical School, Secrets of Successful Doctors. He is a member of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, the Congress of Neurological Surgeons, and the North American Spine Society. He is also the Vice President of East Tennessee Brain and Spine. Dr. Corradino also enjoys painting, traveling, and spending time with his wife and children. In this episode, we discuss surrounding yourself with great people, realizing that you don't know everything, and becoming a better communicator. These are all skills that he believes are vital for physicians beyond medical training. As always, if you like what we're doing, follow and subscribe to our social media channels and leave a review of our podcast. In addition, we'll be doing a book giveaway of Dr. Corradino's new book. So if you're interested, check out our social media pages in the coming weeks for more details. We hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Gregory Corradino. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to today's episode of Leading the Rounds. Today we have the privilege of speaking with neurosurgeon Dr. Cordino, who is a recent author of the book Beyond Medical School, which I have right here, Secrets of Successful Doctors. Before we get started, Peter, how are you doing this morning? Doing well. Had a good night's sleep and I'm ready to, to learn a thing or two from Dr. Cordino today. Awesome. Dr. Cordino, how are you doing today? Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm doing well. Good to be here. So Dr. Cordino was nice enough to send us a copy of his book that I got to read. And we will be doing a giveaway for this book. So if you want to check out our social media pages, we're going to be giving away this copy of Beyond Medical School Secrets of Successful Doctors. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. One of the things that you pointed out in the book that we want to start this conversation with was that physicians during training are so busy learning how to become competent doctors and competent in whatever specialty that they go into that they don't have time to necessarily learn about finance and business and management till they've already started their practice. And at that point, it may be too late as they become stuck in you know, a, a practice that they might not necessarily want to be in or they get in an environment that doesn't promote their growth. And so I wanted to ask you, how can trainees avoid this, this absence of learning about other facets of medicine and leadership before they jump into practice? Well, that's a good question. I, I think one of the things that uh, struck me when I first went into practice was that I was immediately looked upon as a leader or a manager. People would come to me with managerial questions, and it was very confusing to me because I had just 
been through medical school and training and all I really learned about was how to handle medical problems. I didn't know how to handle the kind of people problems that you have in a practice. And that was one of the things that kind of struck me. And people being the kind of people that they are, they're going to have conflicts in the workplace and uh, being able to manage them is a real a skill that I think that a lot of doctors don't do well with. And uh, th this was where I started to realize that, hey, there was a heck of a lot of stuff that I didn't learn that I thought would be important to succeed. And that kind of set me on that journey of learning more about just all the kind of things that I discuss in the book, business practices, planning, finances, managing, leading, uh, and so forth. So I understand that you have an MBA and yeah. you've already, you've had formal education and all these things and how the money moves as um, John Burroughs likes to say. Um, but I was wondering, what do you think medical schools could be doing better to train physician leaders who are competent and confident in their ability to lead is coming out of medical school or residency or fellowship? It's hard for me to say right now what's being taught, I, uh, but I do have seen some doctors that have come out recently and even these doctors are unaware of the importance of proper CPT coding uh, and how, how you can uh, manage the finances of your practice how the money flows in and out, how insurance companies uh, manipulate doctors to uh, get the most out of them by paying them the least. And so I think a large part of it uh, has to do with uh, that kind of education. Aside from what I just spoke about, which is uh, the managerial type of things that you run into when you're managing a medical office or as a surgeon, you're trying to uh, navigate your way through an operation with the staff that you have. Uh, sometimes the staff that you have is not everything that you want it to be, and you have to deal with that. And that has to become a, an important part of your ability to get through operations and, and surgeries successfully. You have to do that without getting irritated and uh, getting frustrated because people aren't properly trained or um, they just don't know what to do in the situation that you find yourself. And those, so those kinds of managing people, I think is one of the most important parts of, of, uh, of being successful in practice. So you mentioned the people that you're working with, whether it's staff or whether it's the physicians, what I'm wondering is when residents come out of practice, or come out of training, they have to choose the practice environment that they join. And so what are your tips for choosing the right practice environment where they can be supported and they can grow as early physicians in their career? So if they're joining a, 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 an established practice, I think one of the most important things is to find a, a senior physician within the practice that can mentor you because and, and accepting the fact that you just simply don't know everything that you need to know about managing people. Uh, let me ask you guys a question. How much, how much uh, 
training or focus have you had on managing folks in a practice as part of your medical training? Very little, if none. Very little. And, and these people that are in the practice are representing you to the world. Uh, and, and you'll be judged on how they represent you. And if you don't have a, uh, a clear vision of that, and you can't communicate that to those people, to, the, to your staff members, then you're going to be judged poorly, probably. And uh, there's many examples that I have of, of people that uh, patients that have been to practices and they're fed up with the way the staff treats them. Well, I, I view that as being a failure of the leadership within the practice because probably the staff isn't being treated well by the physicians. So it starts, I always think that it starts at the top. Whenever you go to a store or you, or you get a service or whatever, and it doesn't work out well, I think that it starts at the top. Poor service uh, is accepted as the norm within that organization and it trickles down and the staff, if they're treated poorly, they're going to figure out a way to, um, you know, screw the person that's treating them poorly. And the way to do that is to, uh, you know, screw the customer. And unfortunately that's, I think the way it works in a lot of uh, practices. And, and there's many, many examples that I could give you of this where uh, people are treated poorly and it, it's reflect, it's a reflection on the leadership within the practice. And basically when I look at it, you don't want to be that person. You went, you've gone through a lot to get to medical school. You've gone through a lot to go through medical school. Your training uh, that you're looking forward to is going to be you know, a struggle for you for years. And when you get through all of that, you don't want that to go to waste because you didn't learn a little bit about how to manage folks and how to treat them well within the practice. Unfortunately, you may or may not realize it, but you're not a God and they will not treat you as a God. You're a person, you put your pants on the same way as everybody else. You don't treat people well, you don't figure out how to way to manage them. Uh, they're going to turn around and figure out a way to subconsciously, passive aggressively treat you poorly. And it's just, it's not a, it ends up being a bad reflection on everything that you've done to that point. And there are so many doctors, and, and I don't know if you've been in a lot of clinical situations yet, but you see people getting angry, people not treating people well, and it, it's it really kind of makes me sad that so many physicians have gone through what they've gone through and they leave it to something like that to, you know, that's their reputation as a hothead or a person that can't deal with adversity or uh, struggles that you know, you're going to go through in your time and practice. Why do you think doctors who are people that train, study, practice empathy and understanding become you know, poorly treat their, uh, their, their staff and their people that they work with? Is it, is it just the, the stress or maybe the ego, as you mentioned? I think it's probably a couple things in that 
direction. Yeah, I, th I mean, let's face it, you, you've been through a lot to get to where you are. Uh, there have been people all along the way that have supported you, told you how good you are, told you how smart you are, and you get finished and you're like, oh, no, I am really smart. And, you know, nobody else could have done this. And uh, I'm on the top of the world. Uh, you know, when I finished my training after seven years, I was able to do very complex operations and, and do them well. And I thought, geez, that's all I needed to succeed. And yeah, in a certain sense, it is, you know, in, in the medical aspect of it, but to the detriment of ignoring a lot of these other things. And I, I think it's just a, a you know, human tendencies. It's hard to fight your ego, you know, especially when people are giving you all these positive reinforcements over the years. And you think that, oh, you do know how to do this. You do know how to handle people. You do know how to handle conflicts. And it's not always the case. It's not that it's really that difficult, but it's a whole different set of um, skills that you're learning. And you're sitting there and you are the physician and you're interacting with your patients, that interaction is a completely different interaction than the one that you're gonna have with your office manager or the receptionist or your medical assistant or whatever. And they're gonna work with you every day. That person that comes in is gonna come in, they're gonna be there for you know 45 minutes or an hour. You're gonna interact with them. You, you are the medical expert. They look at you, they look upon you as being, you know, very much above them because of your training and your expertise. And so that interaction is completely different than the one where you're dealing with your medical assistant day in and day out, week in and week out. They see all of your flaws. They see all of your inadequacies. Believe it or not, you probably have some. And they will pounce on them. And that's, it's just human nature. If you don't treat them well, if you don't figure out how to manage them well, going to come back to bite you one of the things i noticed in your book while reading it was how important it is to be a continuous learner and you're mentioning this in your previous answer that we don't know it all even if we've been through training for seven years and we're a uh, you know, well-established neurosurgeon or whatever field we decide to practice we still need you brought up great in your book, great accountants, advisors, lawyers, financial planners, insurance agents, mentors. And so my question is, how do you know when you're hiring someone that they're not going to take advantage of you or that you're hiring the right people to work alongside you? That, that's a, uh, that's a million dollar question there. Uh, as far as advisors go, of course, one of the best ways to get proper advice is to ask around and get word of mouth rep, uh, re, um, but referrals. So sure, you can do your due diligence and, and read about online reviews of this person, but uh, there's nothing that really that takes the place of a face-to-face -face meeting. Uh, and having a clear sense of what your goals are for this interaction with this person, I think goes a very long way towards 
deciding whether or not they're going to be right for you. Um, there's a book that I could recommend to you and to your audience as well, which talks about the, I think they've mentioned nine different ways in which people are sizing you up. Books on about marketing. It's called Trust-Based Marketing. And I think it was written by a financial advisor and a marketing person. But the, the, the nine ways in which people are me measuring you, is this person right for me? Do they have my best interest at heart? Can I communicate with them? Can they communicate with me? Do they talk down to me? Do they use terminology that is designed to make them look smart, but that doesn't really you know, communicate any information? Is the person financially acceptable to me? So you might find an attorney, for example, that is going to be your advisor and they may be priced way out of your price range. So, you know, and as a young person coming out of training, I, it would probably be smart to find somebody with a, a few years of, of uh, experience behind their belt, but not too many that they're going to retire in a couple of years because you're going to probably be in practice for, you know, 30 years or so. So it, that's, it's a, it's a tough question, but I, it's a very good question. And I, I think if you do your dil dil diligence in, in terms of understanding what your goals are going to be between your interaction with this person, like for example, a, a CPA that I've, uh, I've um, worked with for many years, uh, I said, look, I, I wanna take all the tax advantages I can, but I'm not gonna skirt the uh, law here and i said you know so I, I want you to find everything that i can to do things you know above board and i've worked with this guy for many years i've been very happy with what he's done sure there's probably ways in which we could have you know moved money around that had uh, saved some tax money or whatever but, you know, is it really worth it in the long run to me? It's not. I mean, for other people, it might be. It might be say, look, I, I want to do everything I possibly can. I don't care if you, there's gray zones, go through the gray zones, whatever. So I think having a clear idea of what your goals are before you sit down with this person and saying, are, is this person going to be somebody that I can work with, communicate with, and, uh, you know, are they going to be have my best interest at heart over the long run? I, does that answer your question? Yeah. Great. As doctors, we, we've already established that we, we don't know everything, especially about running a practice. That's some place in the medical education that we're sorely lacking, um, which is part of the reason why Caleb and I started this podcast is to get insights from people like you. And so what would you tell a recently graduated resident who is thinking about maybe starting their own practice or going off into um, private practice? about getting, you know, a lawyer, an accountant, an advisor, financial planners, and they're thinking about ways to save money and they're thinking about is, you know, are all these people worth it? Maybe I can do it myself and their ego is getting in the way. What would you tell this person about the value of surrounding yourself with good people who have the, your best interest at heart? The value is, is immense. I, you know, first of all, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, so this has been done before. People have been very successful at it. 
got to find those kind of people. You have to look for them. You know, have you advised physicians that are just starting a practice before? How's that working for them? Can I speak to them? Perhaps get a reference or from from them for you. So, yeah, I I think one of the most important things is to realize, as as uh, you just said, is that you're not breaking new ground here. This has been done you know, many many times before, and if you think you can do it alone, you're going to waste a lot of time and money and probably emotional um, stress on doing things that other people can help you with. The, the money is probably going to be worth it if you spend, if you find the right person that can help you with this. So you talk about surrounding yourself with great people in your book and you use a Jim Rohn quote call that says you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. And when you're in practice and you can establish your staff around you, you can create a great five people that you work with. But in training and at the beginning of your practice, you can't always choose who you're working with. And so what would you suggest to trainees about affecting their environment and building a great group of people, even if they might not be able to choose exactly who those five people are? again, I think it comes down to uh, thinking about your goals and your and planning for yourself uh, ahead of time. What kind of qualities am I looking for in a mentor? What kind of qualities am I looking for in my friends? What kind of qualities am I looking for in people that I, I am going to hire? Let's say you, you do go into another practice that already has employees. Well, if you sit down and you say, well, these are the things that I want my employees to do, how they want, I want them to act. You sit down with these people when you start and you say, this, you know, this is what I, my expectations are of you. You are a, you know, you're a professional and you've been through a lot of training. These people are going to look up to you and they're going to uh, mirror your actions so if you have a, a really clear idea of where you want to go as a practicing physician, I think that's going to go a long way towards creating the type of environment that you, you know, that you want. And in the absence of being able to do that with people that you actually have to work with, you can certainly surround yourself with the kind of friends and uh, associates that have the same uh, focus and goals that you do. For example, you two guys clearly are, are thinking along the same lines of, you know, how are things going to work when we're done? What can we do to make things better for not only ourselves, but for other medical students that are just finishing their training as well? And if you have a group of people that uh, can support you and uh, help you along that path, it's going to go a long way, even if you're work environment is not going to be the best situation that you have when you finish and when you go out into, into the world. But eventually it will be a reflection of, of what you want it to be. And if you, I, you know, there was a book that I uh, had seen and, and the quote in the book was something like, do you want a culture of design or a culture of default? And I think that goes for a lot of things in your life. 
you want an environment of design or an environment of default. You just want things to fall into whatever position they're going to be in and live with that. Or do you want to make it something that is a reflection of your deepest desires and goals? If you do those things, I think you're going to be much more likely to be not only successful, but uh, professionally and personally rewarded by your practice than just simply letting it happen. And it's very easy to let things happen as a doctor because you, you get very busy, you get tired, you come home, all you do is you just want to eat and go back to sleep. And uh, you've really got to force yourself to, I think on a monthly basis, spend a day or half a day just thinking about, hey, how are things going last month? How are things going to go next month? What can I do to make things better? than they were. And that goes back to my uh, theory about lifelong learning, but it's not only learning, but it's also a focus on improvement and you know, excellence in everything that you do. And so what, how would your advice change to someone who's maybe not at the top of the practice, but just entering the practice? As I say, I, I think those, you, you have to accept what's there. And you have to say, well, I'm, I'm here in this practice. These are the standards that I'm setting for myself. And these are the standards that I want for the people that are around me. Now, typically in practices, unless somebody's just left and there's a, uh, and there's a, uh, there are support personnel that, you know, work with that person before they, they may hire, you know, one or two people to, for additional support. And you have to have a little bit of um, saying who those people are going to be and how you're going to work with them. So I just think that uh, thinking about these goals and, and the plans that you have for yourself ahead of time uh, can go a long way towards surrounding yourself with the kind of people that you really want to be with. But I mean, it's a, it's a very legitimate question because it's not going to be perfect for you from the start. It, it, that's just the reality of you know, life in, in the world. Um, you have to maybe maybe take those people and mold them into what you want them to be. You brought up surrounding yourself with people who are supporting you and, and helping you grow. And one of the ideas that I had never heard of before until I read your book was the idea of mastermind groups. Mm -hmm. Can you talk for a minute about what a mastermind group is and why it would be important to be a part of one? This is a concept that has been around for I don't know, over a hundred years. And, uh, but it goes back towards surrounding yourself with people that are of your same mindset. And uh, if you can get involved in a group of people, Let's say you're just starting your practice and uh, there are a number of other people that are also just starting their practice. Just nowadays, having a Zoom meeting as we are once a month, how, how's, how are things going with you? What kind of problems are you having? What are you doing to solve them? Um, what kind of issues have come up? These issues are you know, very common. Everybody's going to see them. And somebody might have a really good way of dealing with uh, them. Somebody might say, well, I did this and this and this and this worked. And uh, that goes a long way towards saving you the trouble of having to figure it out for yourself. So 
involving yourself in groups like that, I, I think can be very helpful. Um, personally, uh, about 10 years ago or so, I became involved in a group called Peak Performance, and we met four times a year in uh, various cities around the country. There were about 60 people in the group, and uh, the leader of the group, uh, it was about a three-day meeting, the leader of the group gave presentations on um, how you can focus your efforts, what you can do to um, positively influence people around you and so forth. And uh, I, I thought this was really valuable for me. It was, it was a marketing uh, business type of group. But uh, what she did was she brought in other authors. They would uh, go do an interview uh, with the author uh, or she would, and then people would participate in the group. By, they would have hot seats and they would say, all right, this is the problem that I'm dealing with. What do you think I should do? And putting yourself out there and letting the group mind help you and decide uh, what to do was really helpful as well. So yeah, if you can find a group like that, that would be uh, in keeping with your uh, focus or goals right now, that would be something that I would really recommend because at least for me, it was really, really helpful. And I know that a lot of people that have been in these groups have made lifelong uh, friends with them and, and people that they can uh, relate to. There was a guy in the group that I'm that I just referred to that uh, I'm still on his email list and every week or two he sends out an email and I use these little nuggets to help me in my practice, uh, how I deal with my staff or how I present myself to the world. So um, it's a great question. So you wrote or you, you quoted someone, I can't remember, um, that leaders, leaders create the vision of their own life and followers let life happen to them. And so how this seems a little bit contradictory to the idea of creating your own life if you're outsourcing all your decision making, not all your decision making, but decision making to other people. Could you maybe compare and contrast the nuances of what a mastermind group actually brings to the to a leader's table? There, there are a lot of advantages to having various inputs into a certain problem. And I think no matter how smart you are, no how well read, read you are, you're, everything's going to be focused on the way in which you interpret the world, while other people interpret the world differently. And so having the input of these other folks, I think, makes a difference in how you can perceive the world and how you can present yourself to the world. So I don't think it's contradictory in that sense. I think you have a vision for yourself, what you, know, what you want to create. You take the input of the uh, other people within the group that have your uh, best interest at heart. And uh, you, folk, you, know, you filter that into the way that you want to use it. So uh, I, I don't think it's contradictory in any, any sense at all. I would agree. And I think part of being a part of the mastermind group or working with others is, is learning how to communicate and get your point across and say, this is what I'm struggling with. How can you help? And communicating that effectively. 
And one of the things you talked about in your book as well was the importance of being a good communicator. And along the same lines as leadership, I don't think in medical school we ever learn about communicating ideas and communicating with others. And so how can leaders and medical trainees be better communicators? There are so many nuances to that question. Uh, we learn how to take a history from the patient and we learn how to interpret that history and turn it into a diagnosis and develop a treatment plan. And then we have to present that treatment plan to the patient. But if the patient isn't ready for it, if they're not uh, focused on it, they may not be interested in it. Uh, people. You know, a lot of people these days, they want a quick fix to a problem. Oh, we mean I have to stop smoking? Are you kidding me? You mean I have to stop drinking beer? Come on, it's not gonna happen. And so how do you get that across to people? You really need to learn how to, to communicate the importance of your uh, diagnosis and treatment plan to the patient. But that doesn't really help you when you're dealing with a angry staff member or an angry patient or an angry nurse in the hospital or a uh, uh, administrator in the hospital that simply will not see your point of view. And so communication skills are something that there's a there's another example of what I consider to be a lifelong thing, uh, because you have got to be able to get your point across to people. You have to be able to understand what their points of view are. And if you are able to do that, you'll be so much more successful in getting what you want or getting people to do the things that you feel like is best for them to do. Maybe not only for yourself, but for them in the long run. In my case, uh, I took the uh, Dale Carnegie course on effective communication skills uh, because I really wanted to be able to be able to stand up in front of an audience and not be jittery and nervous and you know, sweaty. And I found that it was so helpful in just my own interactions with other people person to person. Uh, because there are so many little aspects of communications that you don't really think about eye contact, body language, um, tone of your voice, the words that you choose, how you choose them, whether you use pauses in your speech, how you can read your audience, how you can read other people, how to listen effectively. And again, so many different aspects of uh, communication skills that are just simply left to happen chance, happenstance, uh, whatever the word is, um, as you're in your training. I feel like even more so in the past two years, people might forget how to communicate since everything has been done over Zoom and you, you don't really get a great appreciation for like how people gesticulate or how to respond 
based on body language or what people mean. I think we've lost a lot of that. And I think some of the communication skills that we've had to practice more in the Zoom era have been uh, more emphasized. Right. Um, and then there's the mask era. And the mask, right. You can't even... you're, you're talking to people, they have masks on, you can't really see what they're thinking. It it's really takes away a lot of the communication. I actually read a really re interesting article um, in, I think it was JAMA Surgery, where they compared two groups of surgeons, one who wore white masks and one who wore clear plastic masks. And they rated both the patient-doctor relationship from the patient's perspective, as well as the perceived effectiveness of communication from a patient's perspective. And just the, the fact of having a clear mask substantially increased both, which I thought was incredibly fascinating. It really is interesting, yeah. But yeah, I... I notice that you we've all lost a lot by losing the lower half of our face when we're communicating with people um, that that also begs another question that i had is if you choose to practice in a private setting uh patients kind of become your business and since we're talking about the patient doctor relationship how does your perspective how do you not muddy your perspective when interacting with a patient as this is you know a client versus a person and how do you kind of keep the business out of the patient-doctor relationship? I guess uh, in my case, it's uh, I, I really haven't had a, an issue with that. It's sort of the interaction that I have with the patient is one bucket and the documentation and the coding and all that other stuff is another bucket. So uh, when I'm interacting with the patient, I'm totally focused on them, what the problem is, what I can do to help it or not help it, and or maybe send it to somewhere else that can help it. But that's my 100% focus. Uh, and uh, so I think you just have to learn how to uh, separate those two things. This is what I'm doing right now for the patient. This is how it's going to work. And when I'm done with this, I'm gonna go out and do my documentation, do my computer uh, stuff, do my coding. And that's a completely different thing. At the end of the day or at the end of the month, I have to tally everything up and figure out you know, how everything added up, but uh, if it didn't add up the way I want it to, then that goes into the planning process. How do I focus on getting more people into the practice that have, that have the kind of problems that I really want to deal with the most or whatever? So yeah, it's a, I think you just have to kind of put that into two different buckets and uh, you can't really put them together as a physician. It's if you, if you try to meld that together, I think you're gonna maybe run into a little bit of ethical problems because uh, you really need to uh, focus on the problem, what you can do to help it and uh, how you can convince them to take your point of view and, and do what you want them to do uh, to fix the problem uh, in that bucket. And then the other bucket is uh, what do you get out of it at the end? But, uh, coding and the insurance stuff and everything else. 
something else as well that you talked about in the past is patients are often your best source of referrals and your best source of future patients. And by treating a patient exactly how you're talking about, by treating them as a patient, as a human and working to solve their problem, it's almost as if the business aspect of it may take care of itself. And that if a patient feels respected and they feel like you gave them your full attention and you're helping them solve their problems, they're way more likely to talk to the people around them and say, this is a doctor who cares. This is a doctor who I would want to treat my family. You should go see them. And so it's almost as if the business aspect takes care of itself if you treat the patient with respect and with dignity and try to take care of them the best you can. I, I would say yes and no. Uh, in this day and age, I think you have to be a little more proactive. Uh, 50 years ago, you could probably say word of mouth was going to get you a long way. Uh, but I think if, you, if you're a little more proactive in that, first of all, you have to do a good job. You have to treat the patient respectfully. Uh, that should be your standard is that you want the patient to go out and tell people how great you know you were uh, but you can help them along the way and so there's a little bit more that you can do to kind of um, nurture that process along a little bit because uh, people they don't necessarily they may want to help you in that respect but they may not know how to help you so at the end of your interaction with them, if you're uh, if you're a, if you're a family doctor, you're going to see these people for years and years. They're always going to think about you. Uh, but if you're a uh, if you're a surgeon or a doctor that's dealing with a specific problem, and then that problem is over with, and then they're gone, uh, then they're maybe not going to think about you a couple of years from now. So you want to kind of you know, nurture that a little bit because really the best referrals that I've gotten in my practice over the years have been from other patients. Dr. Cordino took care of my father 20 years ago. And I knew that if I ever had a problem, I was coming to see him. That's the kind of person that you want to nurture. So at the end of the interaction, you say, if you're happy with our practice, or you have one of your staff say this, if you're happy with our practice, and you know somebody that we could help, please send them along, because uh, that's how we stay uh, in practice here. Little things like that. Now, uh, now, in other things, and I, this is a little, one of these little gray zones that you have, because in medicine, uh, maybe looked upon, uh, you know, frowned upon to reward people for making referrals. But certainly you can send them a thank you card. If somebody does make a referral. And uh, in other businesses, they'll send people, you know, a gift card to Starbucks or the local grocery store or whatever. And uh, that goes a long way towards encouraging referrals as well. In medical practices, probably aren't going to be giving people rewards, but a thank you, a phone call, you know, thank you for referring this patient. Um, we really appreciate your, um, 
you know, interest in our practice goes a long way towards uh, having people uh, think about you. And it's, I think, really important in the long run. Uh, you know, this, I think this goes back to one of the four aspects of medical practice that uh, I like the, this is the way the, this is the way I like to think about the practice. I like to think about the business aspect of the practice anyway. The marketing of the practice, uh, that tells me referrals. And if you think about that from the day that you start, I'm going to be the kind of doctor that has people wanting to come to see me. But that, the second thing is the operation, the way things flow through your office. If you're, a, if you're an internist or family medicine doctor or whatever, how things flow through from the way the patient checks in to the way the patient's put back in the room to the way you see them, to the way you document what you've done and to the way the patient uh, you know, gets discharged from the office. So there's that. Then there's the, the third part is the human resources, the people that you work with. Are they doing the kind of things that you want them to do? Are you doing them in the way that you want them to do them? Are they the right people? Are they showing up for work? Are they showing up on time? And so forth. And then finally, the finances. Uh, is the money coming in the way you need it to come in? Uh, because the bottom line is that if you are not uh, if you're not profitable, you're not going to stay in business very long. And if you're part of a big entity, unless you're a loss leader for that entity, they're going to fire you or they're going to give your next contract is going to be not what you wanted it to be. So you've got to be efficient. You've got to think about these things from day one. Um, and uh, so that led to a little wormhole of an answer, but it started out with a very good question. So Dr. Corradino, I wanted to thank you for your time. Um, and as we're closing out, I wanted to also give you the opportunity to share any last thoughts you have with rising medical leaders that you think would carry them far in their careers. Well, I'd like to just, first of all, thank you guys for having me on your podcast and, uh, uh, if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so through LinkedIn. Um, I think the main thing I would like to emphasize is that you need to spend some time really thinking about the kind of practice that you want to create when you're finished your training. And the earlier you start doing that, uh, the better off you're going to be because, again, you want the kind of thing that you are you're creating the vision for yourself. And uh, the, I think the more that you can think about that, write those things down, these are the things that are non-negotiable in my practice. These are the things that can be negotiated. These are the things are, that are no's in the practice. You'll find a better practice that's gonna suit you. You may find it in a geographical location that's better for you. Uh, you may find that uh, the finances work for you better. But the point is, there are, are so many different aspects of being successful as a physician it has so much more to do than the money that you get paid. And uh, finding that kind of um, uh, 
threading that sort of needle depends a lot more on your planning ahead of time than just letting it sort of happen to you. And I think if I could go back into my early days of practice, I would have really spent more time thinking, what am I looking for in a practice? And um, how do I want it to be? So the planning process, I think, would be the most important thing that I would like to leave with everybody. One thing we always end our interviews with is, what are a few books that have helped you along the way? Uh, well, uh, I mentioned Dale Carnegie's book on, uh, or I mentioned Dale Carnegie, but the very simple book on uh, how to win friends and influence people. There's, I don't know if you've read it, mm -hmm. uh, but there's about 30 different aspects of personal interaction that you can use. Those are just really important for people. Um, the book by uh, on trust-based marketing is good if you're interested in the marketing aspect of it, not only for your for how you present yourself to the world, but what you're looking for when you're dealing with other services that are, you're, you're going to be using their services. Uh, there's another book called, uh, that really got me, uh, by Dan Kennedy called The No BS Management of People. Uh, very simple to read book, uh, very kind of to the point. Uh, and um, kind of got you think, kind of got me thinking a lot about, hey, how do I manage my my folks here? And then, of course, uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill uh, in terms of planning, mastermind groups, things like that. Uh, I think would be helpful. So those are some of the the books that I have used and and uh, have lived by for several years. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today and educating us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Okay, Likewise. Thank you very much. I enjoyed Thank being you. here as well. And uh, maybe we can interact again in the future. And I'd like to um, hear what you thought about the book and let me know uh, if I can help you guys in the future. Take care. Will do. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.